0: Welcome to another episode of Faithfully Podcast, the flagship podcast of Faithfully Magazine, owned and operated by Faithfully Media. In this episode, Associate Editor Timothy Isaiah Cho speaks with Akeminy Uwan and Christina Edmondson about their book, Truth's Table: Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. Let's listen.
1: Okay. All right. Well, uh, Akeminy and Christina, thanks so much for your time to talk a little bit about uh, the book a little bit of the backstory of the book. Um, thanks again for uh, all the work that you guys have done um, just with the podcast. It's really, really glad to, you know, ask you just about even from comparing where you've been with the podcast starting to now, just seeing how things have changed as well. So thanks again for your time. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Um, so the first question I have for you guys, um, in the intro to, uh, your book that's coming out soon, um, you bring up a bit about the humble beginnings of how Truth's Table, the podcast began. And, uh, can you just talk <laughs> a little bit about how things may have changed since the beginning to now? Uh, what, are there anything in terms of, you know, dynamics between the three of you, um, just the vision of the podcast, has anything changed, uh, over those five years? I- I think, you know,
2: I I would say like, like broad brushstroke, like umbrella statement (laughs) that we have always been thinking about our response to the present moment, like the present social moment. And the social moments have changed over (laughs) the last five, I don't know how long we've been doing this because we've had two COVID years. They feel like seven years added, you know, they're like dog years, the COVID years are. And so, but yeah, so we, so I think in that sense, you've seen us. Um work through our emotions and our own racial trauma and our own joys and hopes i mean there's there's a there's a i think if you go back and somebody ever had a this was helpful to them for maybe some kind of research project, you could probably see uh or listen in for the ways in which we try- we shift and we work through how we're processing what's happening in society, how it's impacting us. So, I mean, I was just say broad brushstroke. Absolutely. We've become even more clear about um, some things that were assumed. We've said them out loud. And we did that very early on. We did that in the first season. But I think we have always uh, tried to uh, be clear about the making of the table, who the table is for who we are centering and why that's important to us, and I think we've all we've all uh, pretty uh, consistently main that, maintained that commitment, even as we do work that crosses uh, various uh, kind of cultural boundaries, so to speak.
3: I would just add that, um, you know, we've we've grown. You know, uh, we've we've grown by God's grace. Uh, the little podcast that could. I mean, we just we didn't know what we were doing when we were going choo to- choo. Yeah, we didn't know. Podcasting, we, we, we didn't know. I mean, we didn't listen to podcasts, and we still don't really listen to podcasts.
2: <laughs> okay, I mean, some every once in a while. We're something. We still do something.
3: <laughs> It's not we're not please like,
2: please uh, please invite us on your podcast by the yeah, way yeah, yeah. <laughs> we,
3: will share, we will share it okay so so we're not saying that but we know the importance of doing that uh but you know uh we've grown you know when we first started it was just us and our producer and now it's us and our we have a video producer we have a second producer and we we have staff we have a whole social media team i mean we're coming up by god's grace <laughs> um you know and we have uh and we have just uh, a, a, a community that we've built uh, on Facebook, the Black Women's Discipleship Group, that's been really, really great and fun. They've really enlivened over the uh, recent events that's, that have occurred, um, uh, uh, the Oscars. And so it's been really interesting to get to know uh, them and them get to know us. And, you know, so we've grown in a lot of different ways and we've shifted. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. And I think, like Christina said, you can track, you can track our racial trauma journey (laughs) through through the show if you're really if you're a keen observer and have some discernment you can kind of catch you know where we are and and we shifted and i yeah i think that's good i'm grateful for this good work that god has given us
1: Hmm, that's great yeah and now you guys have gone from podcast hosts to authors of a book so i love to ask authors where did the backstory come from like how did you guys come with the idea together like we need to write a book um, how did you think of the, the, uh, the ideas, the topics that each of you talked about in the book? I'd love to hear that backstory.
3: Well, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, um, funny enough, this was not Truce Table's idea. This, uh, the idea of writing a book that didn't come, we were not like, we need to write a book, said no Truce Table member ever. Because, because we not we don't exactly love writing writers, but don't love exactly writing, and so. <laughs> but uh, we were honestly we had been approached uh, by a few publishers to write a book, but it just the, uh, and p- publishers whom we love and have a relationship with, but they just did not have the uh, the resources in order to be able to fund the project in such a way that me, Michelle and Christina could say no to speaking engagements, could say no to other projects that paid. Right. Um, and then in 2019, I got approached by um, an editor at Penguin Random House to write a book um, for you know, for me to write a book. And I was like, I do have an idea. It's still germinating. It's not yet ready to go. Um, but then she was like, yeah, but, but, you know, I'd like to talk to you about a truth table book too, because she, she was, a, she's a fan of the show. And yeah, just thought that, you know, our analysis needed to definitely be, um, captured in a book. And so, um, so I went to Christina and, and Michelle and kicked it out to them and we had been thinking about it. And then the onset of the pandemic began and everything was shut down and we weren't going to speak places. And so it was honestly just really God's providential, I would say timing. And so we, yeah, so we moved forward and we got a deal in um, summer 2020. And yeah, started writing in early 2021, somewhere there. And so, and now we're here. So (laughs) that's the, I think that's it. See, did I miss, leave anything out?
2: No, I don't think so. I mean, we've, we've, um, we've, we've developed and and tried to contribute different written offerings uh, through the course of Truth's Table. I mean, we've done some partnership, partnership with Jew3 before, um, for example, um, but yeah, I, I think I think all of us individually have had people who have approached us about individual projects to to write on. Um, I'm just I'm a person who enjoys collaboration. I like partnering with people to do things. I I think all of us individually have an individual projects that we are doing or about to do as well. Um, and then I think they're also the dynamic of the the pandemic. <laughs> it's very real. I, it, it's it's quite possible that had had that not happened uh and happening um we would have probably spent more time touring on the road because we had just started to really uh invest in Truth table live where we had the opportunity to do our podcast in front of live audiences with musicians and art and and i think in a lot of ways that really is where we we enjoy being kind of with people like bringing the table two people, (laughs) and really interacting with the people who listen to the podcast day to day. And so it, you know, there probably would have been more of that if the last two years had not been what they have been, right? Um, And so this kind of came in during a time where we needed to shift anyway.
1: You know, just like your podcast, uh, your book is dedicated to and centered on Black women. And so um, can you talk about, uh, you know there's a temptation for especially Christians of color, to feel like they need to make white audiences comfortable in their speaking in their writing right how Can you talk about how you um, fight back against the white gaze in your creative process, both in the podcast but also um, in writing this book?
3: Yeah, um you know I don't give much thought to it. to be honest, but I do think I am wired a little bit differently in that. I mean, there. so let me, let me back it up a little bit. So, I mean, truthfully, when Truth Table started, I had just graduated from seminary. It was a predominantly white seminary, um, very racist, period. Um, It was founded by segregationists. So anybody that want to run up on me and tell me it's not, is going to have to provide the receipts to the contrary. Okay. So anyway, um, <laughs> so I just left that environment. Right. So I was still in v- very much dealing with, uh, racial trauma, racial trauma mode and all the things. Um, <laughs> so in those spaces, I was beating back and having to fight against, uh, what Laura Pritchard calls the wall of whiteness. I had to fight against that, um because it was so deeply ingrained in that institution and in their interpretations. And it was, was, I I had to do, I literally had to do battle with people. Like it was a lot. Um, And so, (laughs) um, a verbal battle that is Um, we don't hit people. We don't hit people. Okay. And so (laughs) I want to be clear. I got, we got to state the obvious these days. And so I, um, so I went ahead and uh, coming out of those spaces, right? You're still trying to, you know, and so you're, you're still kind of sort of have one foot there because you're just coming out. You're still coming out. But in those places, my goal was always, always, always to lift up, to honor my people, period, because God loves us, you know what I'm saying? And loves us just the way he made us and made us black on purpose. And so that was my goal was always to uplift the cause and, um, the plight of our people and the beauty, um, of blackness. That's just, so that, that hasn't changed. Um, and so I, and in some ways I, I, I am in some ways impervious to, um, most people's like criticisms or critiques or, um, thoughts about me. I don't know if that's just cause I'm Nigerian and I just, ah. like, <laughs> or I don't know. I just don't really, I've never really been like a people pleaser, if that makes sense. So I've never really cared too much about, um, you know, in this case, the white gaze. Um, and so I just try to really make sure like, would this, Black person uh, feel like they're seen with what i just said, with where, with the, the lecture I just gave, with this sermon I just preached, Would they feel like they were seen, regardless if they were in a, se- say if they're in a white setting and they're the only one there, do they feel like I was talking to them, that they see me, I was talking to them as a representative of the Lord, because I'm also a prophet, priest and king, right? So do they feel that? That's all that really mattered to me, and if and if they're getting that, and I'm I'm preaching the word, then there's a word in there for the white folks too. You, need, <laughs> that, white folks need to be the center, decentered. You cannot walk around thinking you're a demigod. Come on, there's only one god. You know, I, there, there there is only one true God. So, so yeah, so I, I try, I don't, I don't think about the white gaze, um, honestly, truthfully, particularly in this book. Um, if I'm doing something, obviously if I'm writing for a white audience and that's something different, then I, then, then yeah, you need to be writing to, to the people you're supposed to be writing to. Um, you know, I, I think that's about respecting and honoring people. Um, for who they are, uh, but in this case, I just yeah I don't I, it's not something I've given a lot of thought to in many, many years, you know what I'm saying?
2: yeah, I agree. I think um, I, I think um, so so one of the things I think people need to understand is that respectability politics are, is a survival technique, it's a survival strategy. Um, whether you are aware that you're doing it or not, the roots of it are a strategy to survive against um, the suppression and violence of white domination. And so, so when so when people implicitly and explicitly employ respectability politics, I understand it through a psychological and empathetic lens. So I think sometimes when people of color, as particularly as they're working through their racial trauma and they somehow, and now they feel a bit more enlightened, they may look back and say like, oh, that's posturing, that's respectability. And I'm like, quite possibly that's what's happening. And it still is a survival strategy um, because people die because of racism. You know, uh, racism is not just people's thoughts and feelings. They're, there's blood that cries out. There's a body count attached to racism so 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 i want to give that opening statement uh which is one of people they can consider so-called the white gaze it's not only it's not necessarily because of their internalized racism it also could be an expression of their own safety and honoring the history and legacy of of the violent the necessary violence of white supremacy and racism so so that that part's there with that being said um yeah i think it's really helpful to know who your audience is and we're unapologetic about like our first and foremost audience is black women Black Christian women. And that's that's who we're talking to. (laughs) That's who we love. That's who we identify with. We're not the end all be all of their experiences by any means. I'm certain there are some that will say like, hey, I'm nothing like them or whatever, which which of course not. Right. Um, but we are, yeah, we're, we're really grateful to be clear about that. I think one of the things that happens is there are a number of people who have conferences and books and institutions that are clearly designed for a particular population, for example, white men. (laughs) And they just don't say it, right? Because they're like, we're for everyone. No, you're not. (laughs) stop it (laughs) and you don't want to be right and so I think it's probably surprising to people when we when we're on the nose about this is who this is who we're having this conversation with and I did I felt a lot of freedom in writing this you know it's interesting I I feel like I I feel like I have said and we have said probably pluckier things I think um, maybe I'm just so used to saying what people consider to be plucky things (laughs) but as I look at the book I'm like is this provocative (laughs) provocative things in there I think I you think, think so you think so oh. I, I, let me Back and look again. <laughs> I've got, got long term COVID uh, memory I, I, decline. I'm I, like, really? <laughs> I said why Jesus is going to hell, which is true. Oh, I say, well, I said that. I, I, I have why said, that. I, have said that I said that publicly. <laughs> I've said that publicly. Uh, but, and of course, that's that that's what we need. We we want all idols to be cast down into the pit. And we want to see the real and true Jesus as He is high and lifted up. That's the one that can save us. And so I get why people are like that's pinchy and all the things, because even the word white makes people feel uh get in their feelings but that doesn't mean that it's that doesn't mean that it's something wrong with it <laughs> right just because someone gets in their feelings about it doesn't also doesn't mean that it's an intentional insult either um so yes i, I anyway i all say i agree with the Kimney. i felt a sense of deep freedom in writing i wasn't thinking about the white gaze um or what, what white people think i mean i feel pretty solid on the research present research, social science wise, as well as the historical analysis that we have, we kind of know how white people as a collective feel about this stuff. <laughs> so it's not like I'm speaking and being like, what are the white people are going to think as a collective? I already know what, what, you know, what, how, what people will think and, and can probably uh, predict a response um, to that, um, yeah, and and yet we're we're going to we're going to breathe, we're going to live, um, we're going to grab a hold of the freedom that we have, <laughs> and, we're, and we're going to share. Again, we know that that means that there are doors that are open to us, and there are doors that are not. There are some people that will that are going to be like, "Hey, we want you to come," and the people will be like, "We don't want you to come." And I, I enjoy being clear on the front hand so that people will know. Like I don't I don't like to go places and people act shocked by what I'm saying. I'm like, we have. Uh it's not hard to google us like you know where we are. So there should be no surprises when we say the things we've consistently said.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. I think uh, hopefully um you know other black women who are reading your book, um you know black women who are creating will also be inspired and encouraged just from your own um how you guys have also been thinking about these these sorts of things. Um in the book you also uh stress how the three of you each individually have different wheelhouses of expertise, right? Uh, Akemeni, the theologian, Christina, the educator, Michelle, the organizer. Um, can you talk about each other? Uh, what is the most significant thing that you've learned from the other two uh, hosts of the podcast? Um, what are the things that you, know, you feel like you've had enhanced about yourself in your own growth um, by the other two people?
3: Oh, boy. What haven't I learned? My goodness. Well, from Christina, now I feel like I'm an armchair, uh, 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 uh. I'd be like, well, even my MRI, I'd be like, I'm not a therapist, but my friend saying that the traumatized brain, you know, is <laughs> black and white. I'm like, mm-hmm. you got a brain, you got a bite. I just learned so much from Christina. Right? <laughs> Uh-huh. So now I feel like I'm an armchair. <laughs> it's so hilarious. I'd be like, I'm not, though. No, I'm not, I'm not. Um, but yeah, uh, I've learned so much from her that she just has, Christina has so much wisdom. Like, my goodness, you would think it was the fruit of the spirit, man. I tell you, she has a lot of wisdom. Definitely one of the wise, wisest people um, that I know. Um, and I just learned a lot about grace, patience, uh, remaining prayerful, Hopeful. Um, from Christina, um, I would say from Michelle, I've learned more about the beauty of worship because Michelle was born to worship, you know, Um, and just her, yeah, just like she's really in her element when I see her worshiping the Lord. Um, And I've learned so much from her about learning from Black women, from learning from Black women. So I think, you know, coming out of the racist seminary i was at um you know i just learned um how to yeah you know just in my her my horizons on like um reading reading black women uh reading black theological women uh women i just didn't know i was like oh, oh oh i didn't know this was a thing opening up opening up a new world you know um for me um to poetry too uh even me even me quoting poets now <laughs> from Michelle. I learned that. Um definitely learned that from her. Um and just even just her own passion, you know, uh, from justice to for justice to, that just continues to like complement my own as well. So I would say those are the things that I've learned um from my sisters at the table.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, so much, so much. I mean, uh I think anybody that know that knows us or really or you know, there are people who think they know us and that are people who actually <laughs> Actually, know They know that we do really get a kick out of each other, um, and 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 it's not necessarily always our similarities that we enjoy. It's it's the differences, right? The, the distinctions. Um, so with Michelle, um, yeah, she just has a. I mean, Michelle is like dynamic. She she is an entire. She is a. Um, you know, how people talk about like a like a party in a box. Like she she is a party in a person. You know, like she is <laughs> really, really smart. There's, there's very. It's very often that Michelle is like the probably the, the smartest person in a room in terms of like being just well-read. Her ability to synthesize and to pull it into um, to poetry, mm-hmm. like she's she's an artistry. I don't. She doesn't sort of think of herself as a creative, but I think of her as a creative. Um, and I also I think I've learned a lot about worship as a form of protest. That you know, protesting um you know the the flesh the sin uh the flesh the world sin the devil like all those things um and yeah and and i just and i think uh just in terms of her being an organizer um you know how you how you make noise for things that people need to draw their attention to i mean i think she's just she's skilled at that that's not just like intuitive like she 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 trains Mm -hmm. Um, for the work that she does. And so, so certainly I've, I've learned about those types of things. And also, uh, we, we both, Shell and I both are, are part of multi-generational homes. Um, and yeah, and, and kind of what that means to be shaped and seasoned by multiple generations within your home and, um, yeah, and just uh, what it means to be a part of clergy families. We have, we have some uh, shared understanding and support of that. And I think I, I've learned from her from her as someone who Michelle's case of PK. Um, I've learned a lot about um, lessons through the way she lives and moves through the world that I take into my parenting of my daughters who are PKs. Um so I've I've have i I've been given that gift, I think, uh through um friendship with her. Um but with with Akimney, I've learned a ton. So Akimni is a hoot. Um and she <laughs> and And so she embodies to me a constant reminder of the uh, diasporic beauty of people of African descent because she's, she she kind of lives between these different cultural worlds and um, so very, very much black American, but also very much able to um, give us a reminder. Uh, And by us, I mean, like for like Michelle and I and for others who are um, multiple generation um, uh, American, so to speak, black American, um, a reminder of our home, our West African home. And so when she talks about uh, that, we are cousins like that's for real. (laughs) That's for real. And uh, that it's real. It's a real gift to me as a, a black American who's a descendant of the transatlantic slave trade to have this cousin as a friend who reminds me of home. A uh, home that my ancestors never got back to, but in some ways uh we this friendship is something that my ancestors would have dreamed of that they they cannot have to be united back with someone from home, so to speak so anyway that's just that's really beautiful um you know she uh she's really gifted at um at at business marketing um, <laughs> you know she gets it done she is our table fashionista, so I've learned about really the importance of embracing beauty 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 is really one of um I think that uh, in some ways, if you think about some of the some of the, uh, I think, bizarre teaching that comes out of complementarianism about like the beauty and aesthetics of women. Right. I think in some ways, uh, a Kimney is kind of a, a corrective to that mm-hmm. um, uh, beauty as a form of power beauty as in a, a form of worship and appreciation to God for the way that we've been made. And I think she just embodies that without without vanity. And it's, it's a unique balance to be able to do that. Like she's known as the fashionista, um, but at the same time also known for, for being and genuinely uh, deep, deeply humble. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, so I, that, that, those are some, there are those are some of the many, many things that I have learned and I enjoy about, look at her. And also she's really sensitive. <laughs> she is she is by far the most sensitive person <laughs> at true staple although she does get this reputation i think because of colorism and because of people's all their issues um that she's like the like she's like the tough one i'm like oh that's because y'all don't really know me <laughs> but but she is the she is incredibly sweet very sensitive um yeah and very very thoughtful so and really all really michelle is as well so these are just really kind sweet women mm-hmm. Awesome.
1: Um, In your book, you also uh, talk about some fairly uh, difficult stories and life experiences. Um, And so uh, readers will likely uh, get a more humanized side of all the three of you. Um, Why do you think it's important? uh, Why did you think it was important to humanize yourself as a black woman, um, as you wrote about these life experiences and these stories?
3: Well, you know that's an interesting question because I think that, um, you know the the implicit, you know, uh, um, I guess you could say, uh, statement there is that we are not seen as fully fully human, right? Because <laughs> right? I was like, well, I think of myself as a human because I am a human being. So, <laughs> so indeed. I, <laughs> that might be news to some people, uh, but we are human beings, um, in the hum- image of God. And so, um, no, I, I, so I don't, I didn't think of myself as humanizing myself. I, I I can't make myself more human than I already am. than God has already made me. Uh, now anybody that doesn't see me as that, um, has a problem. They have the issue as Toni Morrison was it. And so, um, I, but I thought it was important because I know to, to be vulnerable and to be honest about uh, past challenges, present challenges, um, uh, and when I say challenges, issues, concerns of the heart um, in my life, uh, because I know that our narratives are portals (laughs) for people and their entry points for people. Like when you tell your story, people can find resonance, you know, or dissonance, right? And and that's fine Um, with your story. It makes them wrestle with their own origin. It helps them to locate themselves uh, or maybe even reorient or relocate themselves. And so to me, it was important to share that. And I don't know when you're talking about colorism as a dark-skinned black woman in America, It's going to be hard to talk about colorism without talking about your own story (laughs) around colorism or what you've experienced or what you've internalized or um, talking about dating and singleness as a Black woman. It's going to be hard to talk about that as a single Black woman in America without actually talking about your own experience or non-experience. How about that? I'm um, throwing a wrench in there, you know, um, on that. And so, so it was important for me to to share those things. It was not easy. I did not want to share all those things, uh, but you know, right is going right, and so <laughs> and the Holy Spirit going Holy Spirit, and so <laughs> and, so, and I, honestly, that's what I was like, ooh, Especially in the um, the mm. chapter, I was like. Ooh. I shared more than I, colorism. I was I knew what I was going to share. It was just hard for me to enter into and write that chapter. But singleness, I shared more than I wanted to share, but it was necessary. So I, I thought some <laughs> things were going to get cut. It did not get cut. All right, that's all. In
2: the book. <laughs> Woo, fix it, Jesus. It's so, in there. <laughs> it's it's it was, in there. It's it's in the book. It's in the book. It was, it's like. It was Jesus, not Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. did to all that. You know, I, so I, I think I was sharing with someone recently, you know, I was trained as a therapist. And so one of my one of my supervisors once told us that whoever does the most talking is the person that is the patient or the client. I was trained in a medical center. So patient is the language that we use. But anyway, all that to say is I was actually trained to say less. If I had a lot to say to figure out how to say it as concisely as possible and to move out of the way to let whatever needs to happen, happen. So that isn't like a place of low self-esteem, like I don't have something to say. Clearly, I have things to say. (laughs) Right. But it it is it is a unique training that says, like, you use your voice strategically so that you can unlock something else. All that to say is that the idea of writing and sharing parts of me really required me to have to, like, um, see that the way that I was trained. And to appreciate it, but also to try to enter in despite that. There's also things that you know that I that I consciously just don't share in the like. I mean, I was like, I'm not sharing that. And, and part of it is because I really think that people have a right to parts of their own story, and they're still working through parts of their story. And the other part too is that there are parts of our story that are deeply attached to other people. And so while we have a right to share, you know, our our story out. Our stories are never really fully independent. They're connected to other narratives. And so I I was indeed mindful of that. The fact that in shepherding my story, it's also connected to other people's stories, too. And so I try to write in a way where first and foremost, I honor myself, but also I honor other people, even people who I think not just think that I know. Our prob- our problem, <laughs> and like their behaviors or actions, right? When I talk about forgiveness. I still want to give people wiggle room to be something different than where than where I la- last left them. If you get what I mean. So even when I'm training, I I'll often say to people, like, you know, like they're like, can we record this?" I'm like, "You can record what I'm going to say, but you probably don't want to record what you're going to say because you might you might change your mind in five years, in five days, in ten years. And so even in my writing, I wanted to. And, and as weak, weakly as I can do this. Right. I wanted to leave room for the grace of change for myself, but but especially for people who I'm like, you know. I've got an issue with you, (laughs) right? I wanted to leave room for change for them. And I just didn't, I did not want, and I know that once you write something, it's almost like things get stuck in time forever and ever and ever and ever. Like people look at tweets that way. They look at social media that way. And so people dig up, you know, something something, someone said five, 10, whatever years ago. And I just think that part of grace is obviously the grace of justice and holding people accountable, but but also giving breathing room for the work of the spirit to change people.
1: That's great. Yeah, really helpful. Um just last question I have for you guys, a bit of an open-ended question, but um what do you guys hope uh readers will uniquely be able to take away from your book?
3: Um I hope that they will um take away uh that I well I think there's different audience there's different audiences. So I'm hoping that for um, Black women, that they would take away that Jesus loves them um, just as they are, you know, in their, as we call on, as, as we say on the show, in their embodied Blackness, right? Um, obviously, Jesus died for us, you know, uh, and, and, and to uh, make us more like him, so we are being sanctified. We ain't meant to stay the same now. So I want to be clear about that. Um, but uh, but they, that they would know that their, um, that their shape, their build, their skin tone, the gap in their teeth or the non-gap in their teeth or their snaggle tooth is enough, you know, and God said it's good. But, you know, I want them to know that, like, you are good. Good. More than good in the way that God has created you. I want them to take that away um, from this. I would want um, Black men, because there's multiple (laughs) here audiences, I would want Black men to take away that Jesus loves you um, and that they would see um, that even though we're we're centering Black women, that they would see that we need one another and that they would see. that our, our symbiotic connection um, and that they would see us, truly see us, um, our burdens, our joys, because there's some funny parts in the, the book now. There's some heavy things, but there are some funny things because we are, we are funny women, okay? And so, <laughs> uh, but I, I hope that they would see us um, fully if you will. Um, And I think I I just hope that they would um, have just even a deeper abiding love, you know, for um, one another. So I think collectively, Black women, men, that we all just have a deeper connected connectivity and love for one another. Then for non-Black folks, our standing room section people, right? So this could be our white uh, uh, brothers and sisters, our Asian brothers and sisters, because we know y'all in the standing room section too. Um, Our uh, Latine brothers and sisters too, um, or siblings, sorry. Um, and, you know, and then let me even say even our, um, those who identify as non-binary, because we, they, they're in, they're in the house too. They're, they're in the standing room section as well too. Um, my, my hope and prayer is that you would know Jesus loves you. Um, and that you would begin to learn that you would, that I hope this, this book truth table, um, Black women's musings on life, love and liberation would teach you how to learn uh, from people who are further down in the margins than you than you are and yet are still persevering in the faith. How are they able to hold on to the faith? I got to read their words to know how they're tackling these issue of colorism and self-hatred, literal self-hatred, and yet still holding on to Jesus and yet still saying, I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. How, how do they do that? How can they do that? You know what I mean? How can somebody that was in Ferguson, you know, there after Michael Brown is lynched and can still say, "Uh, yeah, Jesus is the most high God. How, how? you know, how do you do that? <laughs> you know, so my hope is that people are able to learn how to listen, how to read um, from people that are still holding on to the faith, um, um, but, but, yet are, but are deeply oppressed too. You know, so that's, those are, that those are the constituencies. <laughs> those are my nif- different takeaways, I would say, for those different groups.
2: Yeah, I would say, you know, ditto, amen to all, all the things. And I would say, I hope that people, you know, one of the things that um, that storytelling can do, it's possible, <laughs> is that it can, it can foster empathy. Um, it can also uh, create introspection so outside of my very clear evangelistic goals, we don't make any we don't make any excuses and or apologies. We we would that the people see Jesus, okay? Because my words will never be good enough to help you make it through. It, 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 you know they're not going to cut it. Um. So 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 definitely we want people to see Jesus, and we want to see Jesus. Um. But but yeah, we're also hoping that it, it cultivates empathy and introspection. I know that for me, um, reading. As an adolescent, was incredibly important. Reading stories and words of Black women was incredibly important. I was surrounded in environments by Black by Black women, Black people, um, but still very important to me. And but also reading the stories of people. So for the people who are not Black women, also for me, reading stories by people who are not within my cultural group specifically was also incredibly formative. So I still have memories of uh, reading certain works that while I did not have the same story, uh, my humanity and their humanity held hands. Um, and I was able to be, again, become more introspective about myself, my own journey. And, and the book ends with these pages, these blank pages for the reader to then do their own musings. And I think we've tried to be clear. I know I've, I have beaten this drum as a teacher for a long time that um, we're sharing our thoughts and our feelings. It's not canon, this is not scripture, it's not, it's, you know. <laughs> I feel like this kind of needs to be said because sometimes we take, you know, authors' words and we're like, this is it. And I'm like, no, it's it's I hope you are blessed by it. I hope the spirit works through it. I hope you I hope it empowers you. I hope all all the good things happen. I hope it agitates you if you need to be agitated. Um, but but I also hope that it stirs you up to then do your own musings. In other words, that we serve as an inspiration. So we, we talked to someone recently who basically started their podcast, a, a black woman. Uh, as inspired by truth table. And that for me as a, as a teacher from, you know, that, that is like, that's the kind of stuff that like, just makes us super happy. Like, you know, we're just, woohoo. that's why we do what we do. Okay. And likewise, I would love for people to get to the end of this book, wrestle with, with what we have said and then say, Oh, I got something to say too and use those blank pages for them to muse as well. And then to share this book out with whoever they want to to, to share their thoughts, their, their joys, their hope, their tears with. Right. So that our hope is that this will set off a um, a domino effect of musings, first and foremost, centering the voices of black women, but also musings of, of all people who have something to say.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Faithfully Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, consider subscribing to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you'd like to join Faithfully Magazine in its mission to keep Christine Media diverse, consider becoming a Faithfully Magazine partner subscriber. Partner subscribers, or FMPs, enjoy full access to our exclusive content and so much more. Just head to faithfullymagazine.com to learn more.